Well, happy Resurrection Day, everybody, and this is kind of my, one of my favorite times of the year, when we get to celebrate the resurrection of our King, our God, our Savior, and uh, we're going to be looking at a few passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so if you open to that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and as you're turning there, we'll go to the Lord uh, for prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we thank you, Lord, that we, we have a reason to live. We thank you, Lord, that we have a reason to celebrate and to rejoice because our King, our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus, has conquered the grave and defeated man's greatest enemy, death. Without his death and resurrection, without his death as a substitute sacrifice for our sins, without his resurrection from the dead, then man's greatest enemy, death, would not be conquered. And so we can have hope in life because Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. So, Lord, I pray that as I proclaim your truth, it would be your truth that would be proclaimed. That you would cancel the fallible man and that you would anoint me and empower me by your spirit to proclaim your truth so that I would not lead anyone astray. I pray, Lord, that you'd open hearts and minds, including my own, to receive truth from your word and empower us to apply these truths to our lives. So that through the power of the Holy Spirit and for your glory, we could be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So today's message, did Jesus rise from the dead? What I want to establish today is that, yes, we believe, we have faith in the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. We have faith in his bodily resurrection, but that faith is founded on fact. That faith is not an irrational faith. It is a reasonable faith that the historical evidence shows that Jesus of Nazareth did, in fact, rise from the dead. So I titled this message, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? Now, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that everybody came in here today already believing that Jesus rose from the dead. But if you didn't, you know, I pray that God be with you and enlighten your mind to understand these truths and to see that the evidence points to the fact of an empty grave and a risen Lord. And so we're going to look at this. We're going to start off with a quote from Blaise Pascal. And um, you'll see a picture of Blaise Pascal. He was a great thinker. Um, Probably not the best looking guy in the world, but he was a great thinker. And, uh, but Pascal, he was writing a defense of the Christian faith. He was a brilliant guy. I mean, he, so many things that he invented. He wrote the laws of probability, and he was just a brilliant guy. But he died at the uh, age of 39. If he had lived to be like 89, we'd probably be having this uh, service on Mars right now. I mean, this guy was that smart. And, uh, but he was a brilliant guy, but he was also a Bible-believing Christian. And uh, he stated, and I quote in his Ponces, he was writing a defense of the Christian faith, and he had all his notes, but he never put it together, and he died. And so they didn't know how to group his notes together, and uh, they did the best they could. I've written several papers on uh, his uh, apologetic methodology, his method to defend the faith. If you'd like more information on his work, uh, just talk to me, but his uh, ponces just means thoughts in French, and they put together his writings and grouped it by different subject matter. And Ponce 434 states as follows, Imagine a number of men in chains, all under sentence of death, some of whom are each day butchered in the sight of the others. Those remaining see their own condition and that of their fellows. And looking at each other with grief and despair, await their turn. This is an image of the human condition. 
And so Pascal is saying that, okay, I'm giving you this little fictional illustration of waiting in line to be executed, but it's not as much fiction as I was telling you. This is the real state of affairs, that eventually we reach an age where we realize, you know, someday I'm going to be attending my own funeral. That I'm not going to live forever and ever on this planet Earth. There's this enemy called death, and I cannot defeat death in my own strength. And uh, so Pascal said death. I like to summarize Pascal's thought with, with D words, death. And so most people, because of death, uh, what they do is they divert their attention. Rather than facing death head on, they go dancing, is what Pascal says. If you were living today, he'd say they, they play computer games or surf the web or watch football or whatever it may be, but they divert their attention rather than facing head on the fact that we have this enemy, death, and death will win unless we can find deliverance from death. And, um, and so Pascal would say, there's only two kind, because of this, there's only two kinds of people that he would classify as being wise. Those who seek God with all their hearts because they don't know him, and those who serve God with all their hearts because they do know him. So because of death, I mean, you could be filling up your time with anything you feel like doing and playing cards all the time, whatever it may be. You can fill up your time with everything, but you're not facing the fact that someday you're going to die. And so the wise man is going to seek deliverance. And once he finds the Lord, he's going to serve the Lord. And so I, I want to talk about the importance of the resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And so Paul makes it very clear. If you have a Christianity without a risen Christ, it's not Christianity. If Jesus of Nazareth, if his body rotted in the tomb, he can offer us no hope. Death defeated him. What good is he going to be for us? And so Paul says, look, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our preaching is a waste of time. Okay, you guys and gals are wasting your time right now. You might as well just sleep in on, uh, on this Sunday afternoon. Our preaching is useless. Our faith in Christ is useless. And we're still dead in our sins. And in the end, death wins. And uh, verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15 the second part of that verse, he says this, Paul says this, If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay? You know, it's really crazy. Very, very few people, you know, there are those people that get so depressed that they get suicidal and all, but most people live like there's hope. And what the Apostle Paul is teaching us is that is not consistent if you don't believe in Jesus' resurrection. No resurrection, no hope. So if Jesus did not rise, if Jesus did not rise, then human history is one cruel joke. In the end, death wins. You can come into life and accomplish great things, or you can come into life and not accomplish great things. It doesn't matter. In the end, you just die, you cease to exist, and it's all over. So if, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, human history is one cruel joke. In the end, death wins. But if Jesus rose, then death has been defeated. And so the question, did Jesus rise? It's an important question for all mankind. 
A lot of people think, well, it's only an important question for Christians. No, you live in Jesus' universe just like we do. Okay? Um, God's reality is your reality too, whether you like it or not. And so this question is important for all mankind. Did Jesus of Nazareth bodily rise from the dead? What's at stake? If Jesus bodily rose from the dead, he is who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be Savior. He claimed to be Messiah. And so if Jesus bodily rose from the dead, then he is who he claimed to be. If he didn't rise from the dead, then he was a big fraud, a big deceiver. And I doubt a deceiver would change the course of human history for over 2,000 years. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is who he claimed to be. He is God, he is Savior, he is Messiah, and he has conquered death, man's greatest enemy. So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at an ancient creed. We read this on Friday in celebration of Jesus' death on the cross. And, um, but we're going to read this ancient creed, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. Now it's an ancient creed or hymn that goes back to the earliest days of Christianity, before the New Testament was even written. The early church, before the New Testament was written, uh, they would preach from the Old Testament, but they understood the Old Testament. They interpreted the Old Testament through the lenses of their encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what they did, so that people would not be confused, they, made, they put together ancient creeds or hymns that were recited or sung in the early church. And these were in Aramaic or in Hebrew, the language of the ancient Jews, when the church was primarily Jewish, and they would recite these creeds and these hymns. Okay? Um, and, and then they would study, read from the Old Testament, and acknowledge that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. So here's one of these ancient creeds that goes back to the earliest days of Christianity. Now, the fact that this creed is so early is vitally important because legends take decades, well, it takes a couple generations for legends to start wiping out core historical data, and then it takes a few centuries for it to completely overwhelm the true historical thing, okay? You don't have centuries with the resurrection accounts. You don't have decades, okay? You don't, you'd be lucky if you have just a few years, if even that. Some scholars believe the Apostle Paul received this creed when he got baptized. When he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, and then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him. That's within a year of Jesus' crucifixion. Some believe that Paul received that creed at that point. Gerd Ludmann and Marcus Borg, two non-believing New Testament scholars, they're New Testament critics, they attack the Bible, they believe this creed was formulated within one year of Jesus' death. The whole idea that this is legend uh, just doesn't hold water. So what did this ancient creed say? Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. That's official rabbinical language. The language of a rabbi passing on to his disciples what he received from his rabbi. Okay? And Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. On Friday night, we went over Isaiah chapter 53, one of the uh, prolonged predictions of Jesus' sufferings and death. Psalm 22 would also fall into that category. But the Old Testament predicted that Messiah would come and die for the sins uh, of, of his people. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas that's the Aramaic name for Peter, then to the twelve, the twelve apostles. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And then Paul adds to this creed, because it doesn't read as poetically uh, when you translate it back into Aramaic. Paul adds to this ancient creed, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So Paul's writing about 55 AD to a church that he planted, the Corinthians. He started the church in 51 AD. And he said, remember when I gave you this creed in 51 AD? Uh, but he's telling them, uh, if you don't believe me, go talk to these 500 witnesses. Most of them are still alive. And he's putting his apostolic authority on the line, announcing that these eyewitnesses, hundreds of them, were still alive. And by the way, nobody wants to call Paul a liar. He was sincere enough to suffer and die for his testimony that Jesus of Nazareth is risen he is risen indeed. And then he appeared to James. James is the half-brother of Jesus, who used to mock his brother, his big brother Jesus, when, uh, before the crucifixion. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul adds his own post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the list, to the creed. He said, yeah, and, and, and to Paul it was like one untimely born. All the other, he's like a baby born in the 11th month. Because all the other appearances, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, were before Jesus ascended to heaven. It was within that 40-day period. With Paul, it was about a year later. Okay? And so Paul said, I was, he appeared to me as the one untimely born. So that's the creed. Uh, we also have the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Uh, John, Pastor John read from one of the accounts in Matthew 28 earlier on. But because of this data, even New Testament critics, many of whom are not Christians, and they attack the Bible, and they criticize it, and they try to, they take a, a view of uh, it being, you know, every passage of the Bible is like false until proven true. And they don't use that standard for anything else from ancient literature. They accept anything they read as true unless there's good evidence to find that it's false. So they're very biased against the New Testament. Yet my old professor, Dr. Gary Habermas, good friend of mine from Liberty University, he's considered probably the world's foremost expert on the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection, uh, written numerous books on the resurrection, wrote two books on the Shroud of Turin. We'll talk about that later. But he said, basically, if we just go to the core historical facts in the New Testament, the core historical facts that are accepted by virtually all of the world's leading New Testament scholars, even the non-believers, we just go to the core historical facts that even the skeptics embrace, we can build a case for Jesus' resurrection. Now, when he's talking about virtually all, he's talking between 97 and 99% of the world's leading New Testament critics, okay? And these guys make their living. These, these guys, there's about 1,500 of them, but they, uh, they hold their heads of departments, Bible departments, New Testament departments, sometimes religion departments. Uh, they're experts on, on Koine Greek. Uh, they're experts on the New Testament. And, and many of these guys are not believers. Mo most guys... That, are, that study the scripture, that want to get a degree and study the scriptures, go for a master of divinity degree if they're believers and become preachers. Um, but many of the guys who go on to do New, New Testament critical studies, an awful lot of them are trying to attack the New Testament and are not believers. Now, in the process, many have become believers, um, but they're not exactly um, our friends. And so what are these core historical facts? Uh, by the way, that creed that we read just gives a summary list. It does not list any of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to ladies. That's left out of the list, probably because in ancient society it was very chauvinistic. And, um, uh, and both among the Jews and among uh, the Greeks and the Romans... And uh, so that's just a summary list. 
But fact number one, virtually all New Testament scholars acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion uh, approximately 30 A.D. Uh, under uh, Pontius Pilate. Okay? Uh, even Bart Ehrman, public enemy number one, the number one leading opponent of Christianity, um, wrote a book arguing that Jesus actually existed, and then he calls Jesus' death by crucifixion uh, one of the most firmly established historical facts of the first century A.D. Now, if he were consistent, he would also acknowledge that in those same accounts, in those same narratives, you also have Jesus' bodily resurrection. But Bart Ehrman doesn't want to go there. But at least he's acknowledging that Jesus did die by crucifixion. Now, this refutes the swoon theory. The swoon theory was this idea that Jesus only passed out on the cross. He didn't really die. He was unconscious. They thought he was dead. They buried him in the tomb. He wasn't dead. He was revived in the tomb. Somehow he moved the stone in his weakened state from the inside where there's no leverage. All the leverage is on the outside. You know, it's, it's, anybody can, it's like pushing a car downhill if you want to roll a stone over a tomb. You want to open it back up, now it's like pushing a car uphill. Now you need to get three or four of your buddies, and strong ones at that. But from inside the tomb, a guy who's been scourged, a guy who's been crucified, he's going to move it from inside, that's, uh, that's not going to happen. Okay. Then he's got to overpower the guards. Some of the skeptics will say, well, we don't believe the guards were there, even though ancient testimony that we have from eyewitnesses in the Bible, the guards were there. Um, but then he's got to walk for miles with holes in his feet on jagged rocks and hard ground, which is all you get in Jerusalem if you've ever been there. That's all you get. Then somehow he's going to appear in the upper room when the doors are locked. He's going to appear to the disciples and they're going to say, wow, we believe you've conquered death for us. Um, now we're willing to die for you. No, they're going to say, Rabbi, you need medical attention. Okay? And, uh, uh, but the fact of the matter is, in John 19.34, the Apostle John, an eyewitness of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle John says this, in verses 34 and 35, instead of breaking Jesus' legs, which, by the way, would have disqualified Jesus from being the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb could not have any broken legs, according to Exodus chapter 12. It's also predicted uh, in, the, in the Old Testament that God would not allow his, his Holy One's bones to be broken. Uh, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear to confirm that Jesus was dead. You know, in other words, if he's not dead, this will kill him. Okay? Um, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Well, that flow of blood and water is because there's a sac that surrounds the heart called the pericardium. And it contains a transparent, watery, liquid substance. Okay, But when your heart is beating, instantaneously, the blood from your heart mixes with it. So if you pierce the side of a living person, you're going to have blood gushing out, squirting out, or pouring out. That's all you're going to see. If the person is dead, then you're going to have a gentle flow of blood alongside the liquid from the pericardium. In other words, the, the Journal of the American Medical Association, some of the world's leading doctors in the late 1800s, but also in the uh, late 1900s, they revisited it and they confirmed that Jesus of Nazareth was dead. This is modern medical evidence that John knew nothing about 2,000 years ago, but it's modern medical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was dead before he was taken down from the cross. By the way, if you're in the down position, you can't breathe. You can't be there too long before you die. Jesus had to push up with spikes in his feet off a block of wood just to breathe. 
He, he lasted six hours on the cross, probably because he was scourged so violently before it. And, um, but whatever the case, the flow of blood and water from his side shows that um, Jesus of Nazareth was dead before he came down from the cross. And so Jesus died uh, by crucifixion. Uh, fact number two was Paul's transformed life. Virtually all of the world's leading New Testament critics acknowledge that Saul of Tarsus, that's what Paul's Jewish name, Saul of Tarsus was a persecutor uh, of the church. He was the leading persecutor of the church, and uh, yet his life was radically changed. He went from persecuting the church, imprisoning uh, Christians and having them executed, to becoming the leading missionary and church planter and theologian of the early church. So much so that he was willing to be persecuted and to suffer and then to eventually die. He was beheaded uh, approximately 67 A.D. So his life was radically changed. That's acknowledged. Well, how did Paul account for this radical change, radical transformation in his life? Paul told others, and we have it in the book of Acts, and uh, Paul also in accounts before uh, Roman uh, officials, he would share his testimony. He claimed that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. When he was en route to persecute Christians, Jesus met him and it changed his life drastically. So basically what that amounts to is if you deny that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to Paul, you've got, you've got a few problems on your hand. One problem, you've got no way to explain how his life could change. One day and his life changes from being the biggest enemy Christianity had to one of its biggest leaders. No explanation um, whatsoever. Um, and, uh, and so you remove that and you've got no explanation there. Second problem is Paul really believed he saw the risen Christ. When Campus Crusade for Christ, like 20 years ago or so, they challenged uh, Marcus Borg that they were going to bring me down to debate him on Jesus' resurrection. Now, a year before that, he had really got slaughtered in a debate with William Lane Craig on the resurrection, so he probably wasn't real happy about it. But he thought he was too important, Marcus Borg. He taught at Oregon State University. He thought he was too important to say, yes, I'll take the debate, or no, I won't take the debate. Okay? And so I went down there not knowing if I was going to debate him or not, and I gave nine lectures on the resurrection, did a lot of Q&A in the dorms. On the night of the debate, Marcus Borg didn't show up, and so I just read my opening statement and then took questions. And um, a few hundred people there, would have been a lot more people had, had he taken the debate. But he acknowledged, Marcus Borg acknowledged, that Paul's life was transformed by what he believed was a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. But Marcus Borg thinks that those kinds of things don't happen, so Paul was wrong. Changed his whole life based on it, but Paul was wrong. So that's what I was going to offer to the audience. Is give you, we both agree that Paul's life was dramatically changed by what he believed was a visit, an appearance of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ after his death and resurrection. That's what Paul believed. I think Paul got it right. Marcus Borg thinks he got it wrong. You get to decide. Are you going to side with Paul, who was the guy who experienced it, or a critical scholar coming on the scene 2,000 years later who thinks he's so smart he can figure out what Paul actually experienced better than Paul, who was actually there. And so there's no explanation for Paul's radical changed life unless you accept the explanation Paul gave. He saw the risen Christ. Fact number three, James's transformed life. James mocked his brother, uh, uh, his big brother Jesus, during Jesus' earthly ministry. Yet immediately after Jesus ascended to heaven... James, in Acts chapter 1, is already one of the key leaders of the Jerusalem church. What made him change? 
I mean, you could, with James, there was a, a sibling rivalry that was like off the charts there. James, they, they, they used to call him the just one. That was his nickname. Uh, because he had knees that looked like camel's knees from kneeling down and praying so much on hard ground. And um, yet, I'm not a betting man, but if I were a betting man, I'd be willing to bet that no matter how good of a kid James was, his parents would probably tell him time and time again, why can't you be more like your big brother Jesus? <laughs> and since he wasn't a believer at that point, he didn't even have the option of saying, well, because he's God incarnate. Okay? I can't keep up with that. So um, uh, I would argue that James's letter that he wrote to us is probably the most convicting letter in the Bible. Um, it's James the Just. He was in... This guy was, he was an expert on righteousness because when he looked in the face of his big brother, he was looking at righteousness. Amen. He was looking at the righteous God. Now, it took him a while for him to figure that out. But James is like, look, man, I am a serious Orthodox Jew. Our, our dad was a serious Orthodox Jew. Of course, Jesus himself was virgin born. But we got a lot of respect in the religious community, and now my big brother's going around telling people he's the Messiah. People are laughing at us now, and we wanted respect in the Jewish community. And uh, then when Jesus gets crucified, nailed to a cross naked in a public place by the pagan Romans to die the most shameful way possible, James was probably alone in his room weeping and crying out to Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, why, why, our, our name, our family's name, we're descendants of King David, yet our family's name is toast in the Jewish religious community. He probably spent a few days on his knees crying all alone in his room, and then all of a sudden, he recognized I'm not alone in my room. Somebody else is here. It looks like my big brother Jesus. And uh, it, there are scholars that said if the creed of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8 did not include that one-on-one -on -one appearance of Jesus to James, we'd have to assume that it occurred anyway because he, he went from being a mocker of his brother to being one of the primary leaders of the Jerusalem church pretty much overnight, okay? That's why the Apostle Paul said the leaders of the Jerusalem church, they had three pillars, Peter, James, and John. And James there is the half-brother uh, of Jesus. And uh, now what made him change? Uh, how could he go from a mocker to one of the key leaders of the Jerusalem church? Uh, what made him change? He was, even when the apostles fled, in the 40s AD, when the apostles, original apostles had to flee from Jerusalem, James still stayed behind to pastor the church there until his death in 62 AD. He was thrown off the temple. He was still alive. So then they went down and started stoning him to death. He was quoting Jesus from the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And eventually a guy took a club and smashed his head in. Okay? By the way, James is smarter than him is not only recorded in the Bible. Josephus, the Jewish historian, who is not a believer, he also records uh, James's death by martyrdom in Jerusalem. By the way, it's a good, that's a good piece of evidence that the book of Acts was written in 61 AD because it doesn't include James's death, 62 AD, or Peter and Paul's death, about 64 to 67 AD. It went right up to the current time, 61 AD, the book of Acts. Uh, but whatever the case, uh, unless Jesus rose from the dead, there's no explanation why James would go from thinking that his brother um, was a clown who destroyed his family's religious uh, reputation in the Jewish community. He went from that to worshiping his brother as God and trusting in him for salvation and becoming a leader in the early church. Fact number four, the apostles transformed lives. 
They preached Jesus even to the point of persecution and martyrs' deaths. These were guys that fled when Jesus got arrested. Okay? Uh, they, Peter, their leader, the oldest, probably biggest and strongest of the apostles, he denied Jesus three times on the night Jesus was arrested. How did they go from that to then being these brave witnesses so that eventually they suffered persecution, they were beaten numerous times, and martyrs' deaths? You know, men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. Amen. Okay? Um, you know, this refutes the stolen body theory, the idea the apostles stole the body. Um, you know, if the apostles had stolen the body, they would have executed the Roman soldiers because the Roman seal would have been broken. That was Roman law. Uh, but the idea the apostles stole the body and then lied, men do not, lie, do not die for what they know to be a lie or a hoax. They were sincere witnesses who believed they had seen Jesus risen from the dead on numerous occasions. Therefore, they were willing to preach Jesus and uh, willing to die um, for uh, Jesus. Um, so, so he's refused to stolen body theory. Uh, th these were not hallucinations. We now know that hallucinations uh, do not occur to groups. It's like if you have a dream and your friend has a dream, you don't have the identical dreams. Okay? Hallucinations occur in between your ears. Okay? Yet Jesus appeared to groups. It's also easy to talk people out of hallucinations. In uh, Navy SEALs, in their hell week, where they, uh, they sleep-deprive the Navy SEALs and their training, they food-deprive uh, them, and it starts generating hallucinations. So one Navy SEAL was on a boat, and he was swinging his paddle, and the instructor said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm trying to hit the porpoises who are jumping over the boat. And the instructor said, there are no porpoises jumping over the boat. He said, no. The instructor said, no. He said, oh. And he put down the paddle. And time and time again, um, the research shows that it's very easy to talk people out of hallucinations, and two or more people do not share the same hallucination. Jesus appeared uh, to groups. So they weren't hallucinations. What, the apostles weren't lying. It wasn't the stolen body theory. What transformed their lives? I mean, in 67 AD, approximately 67 AD, they took Peter up a hill to be crucified. And Peter's telling the Roman soldiers, you can't kill me this way. I don't deserve to die the way my Savior died. And so church history tells us, they said, well, we, we got orders to crucify you. Would it be all right if we crucify you upside down? And Peter said, yeah, do that. But I'm not worthy to die the way my Savior died. Now, you crucified right side up. You can't breathe. Uh, eventually, you die of suffocation or asphyxiation. Um, when uh, you're turned upside down, the blood would just keep filling your, your skull until eventually you'd have a massive headache. It could last for days. And then eventually, the contents of your skull just explode. Horrible way to go. Two years later, Peter's brother Andrew, another one of the apostles, he had a different response to being crucified. They crucified him on an X-shaped cross where they nailed your feet separate, okay? And he walked up the hill and saw that they were going to crucify him, and he came to attention, and he saluted the cross. Because he said, what an honor to die the way my big brother died, and what an honor to die the way my Savior died. Doubting Thomas in India, killed by a spear from Brahmin Hindu priests. Okay? These guys went all over the place, battered and beaten. James, the brother of John, in Acts chapter 12, he gets beheaded by one of the Herods. And uh, what would take these guys who were cowards and turn them into fearless defenders of the gospel, uh, I would say you not only need the bodily resurrection of Jesus, they're still hiding out, and then you also need the Feast of Pentecost, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to transform them 
Um, and so the apostles transform lives. Now those four facts that we just covered, Jesus' death, the changed lives of, of Peter, James, and the apostles, okay, um, those are accepted by 97 to 99% of the world's leading New Testament critics. Fact number five, the empty tomb, only about 75% of New Testament scholars acknowledge the empty tomb. So these guys are just not, it's like they don't want to accept it, but three out of four of them say, yeah, that the tomb probably was empty because it would have been so easy for the Jewish religious leaders to produce the rotting corpse of Christ if it was there. Of course, his corpse didn't rot. He was raised on the third day before decay would set in. But about 75% of these critics acknowledge the empty tomb. But we could still build a strong circumstantial case for the empty tomb. Okay? This is what we're, we're dealing with. If somebody's skeptical about what the Bible says, what we're telling you is the historical evidence supports what the Bible says. Look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we wouldn't be bunch of Gentiles, non-Jews, 2,000 years later, and we're still gathering in houses of worship all over the world talking about them? That doesn't sound like uh, a dead Savior who stayed dead. Uh, evidence for the empty tomb. The first witnesses of the empty tomb, as well as the risen Christ, were women. Now, you might think, well, that's no big deal. Yes, it was a big deal. In ancient times, where the Jews and the Gentiles were very chauvinistic. A woman's testimony wasn't even allowed in a court of law, with very few exceptions. We don't have time to go into those exceptions. So a woman's testimony was not allowed in a court of law. So the apostles saying that women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the risen Christ, that serves no evidential value. Right away, Jewish men and Gentile men would say, just woman's tales, woman's stories. Okay? And, uh, and then it's even worse because Peter and John didn't believe them and then went to the tomb and found out that the tomb was empty. So now you got the two biggest leaders. This is before James became a leader in the church, long, over a year before Paul got saved. So Peter and John were the two biggest leaders. And what were the two biggest leaders? They got refuted, proven, proven wrong by ladies. This is horrible public relations. It's what scholars call the principle of embarrassment. Yes. That when authors record data that makes them look bad, embarrassing details about themselves, they're probably telling the truth. Okay? It's like when I debated Elliot Ratzman about God's existence at, at Princeton. Elliot Ratzman got up there and said, well, I read through the Gospels to prepare for this debate, and uh, I found that they were nothing but a bunch of fabrications and lies. Then later on in the debate, he said, well, I read through the Gospels to prepare for this debate, and uh, why should I follow the apostles when they were nothing but a bunch of bungling idiots? Okay? And so I got up, I said, hey, Elliot, you th are you thinking about what you're saying? He's just shooting off the hip, man. Because you're contradicting yourself. First you're saying that the apostles were not honest guys. They wrote a bunch of lies and fabrications. And then you're telling me they presented themselves as a bunch of bungling idiots. If they presented themselves as bungling idiots, they were probably telling the truth. And what you're calling lies are actually true. And... Um, so the first witnesses were women. Uh, Jesus was buried in a, the tomb of a well-known man, Joseph Arimathea. The scholars want to say, well, maybe Joseph Arimathea never existed. Uh, you know, he's a Sanhedrin member. There's only 70 of them. It's kind of like one of our senators. We have 100 senators. And this is in Jerusalem where the 70 members would meet. So if there was no guy named, named Joseph of Arimathea, it would have been so easy to refute. It would have said, okay... Well, this, this, these stories about Jesus rising are a lie because no guy named Joseph Arimathea actually exists. So they said, okay, well, then Christianity would not have grown. So there had to be a guy named Joseph Arimathea on the Jewish ruling council of 70 members. But maybe he didn't give his tomb for Jesus uh, to be buried in. Well, now you got another problem. You just admitted he exists. 
And now it's real easy to walk up to him on the street and stop him and say, excuse me, Joseph Arimathea, did you or did you not give your tomb for Jesus of Nazareth uh, to be buried in? Okay? And so uh, the vast majority of New Testament scholars acknowledge that, yeah, Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. You also have the resurrection preached in Jerusalem in the early 30s A.D., this is because the sermons of Acts chapters 1 through 12, the theology is very primitive, very undeveloped. And so that's the scholars acknowledge. This is the earliest preaching of the Christian church and the earliest preaching talked about Jesus rising from the dead. Yet this is in Jerusalem and the church is growing rapidly. Jerusalem is the easiest place on the planet Earth to refute the resurrection because Jesus was buried in a nearby tomb. The Jewish religious leaders had the means and the motive to go to every tomb in Jerusalem and produce the rotting corpse of Christ if it was still in the tomb and if it was rotting. And they could not do it. No body was produced. Sometimes when I debate the resurrection, I feel sorry for my opponents because it's really, it's 2,000 years too late to refute the resurrection. You guys had the means and the motive to produce the body, but you couldn't because the tomb was empty. Fact number six, the worship day was changed. The primary worship day was changed by Orthodox Jews, the early church, from Saturday to Sabbath day to Sunday. They started calling Sunday the Lord's Day. Okay? Now... If you meet an Orthodox Jew today and he has yet to trust in Jesus for salvation, okay, his primary worship day is still going to be Saturday. So that hasn't changed for 3,500 years since the law was given to Moses. They're not going to budge on that for just any old reason. Well, what is the Sabbath day for? The Sabbath day was instituted by God. Okay, that's pretty high up on the food chain, huh? God told the Jews, set, a, set apart the seventh day of the week and rest. But why? Because God said, I created the universe in six days and rested on the seventh day. So the early church was made up of Orthodox Jews. The apostles were Orthodox Jews. Most of the early Christians for the first decade or so were Jews. They had to believe. They got the memo. They had to believe that God was telling them that the primary day of worship was now going to be Sunday instead of Saturday. Okay? So an event, for them to get the memo, an event as big as creation or bigger than creation had to occur. If it's not the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, I don't know what it would be. Jesus rose on a Sunday, and most, if not all, of his post-resurrection appearances were on a Sunday. So they began to refer to Sunday as um, the Lord's Day. And, um, and so the, 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 there is no other explanation why the early church, which was Orthodox, made of Orthodox Jews, would begin to call Sunday the Lord's Day and begin to worship on Sunday. And so basically the evidence is overwhelming. When you, look, when you, when you study history, you look for the best explanation possible. And uh, people came up with alternative theories like the hallucination theory, the stolen body theory, the swoon theory in the late 1800s. And it was the liberal, non-believing skeptics themselves who refuted their own theories. So when the smoke cleared, the only thing standing, the only thing left standing was, he is risen, and he is risen indeed. And uh, now further evidence, if you want empirical evidence, I think another possible evidence for the, is the Shroud of Turin. I don't, you're not looking at uh, a photo of half of the shroud, you're looking at a photographic negative of half of the shroud. The shroud itself is very unimpressive. It serves the purpose of being a photographic negative. So a photographic negative of the shroud becomes a positive. That's where all the details are. About 85% of what we know uh, about 
crucifixion, the rigors of crucifixion and Roman scourging from the Roman flagrum was having forensic scientists examine life-size photographic negatives of the Shroud of Turin. Okay? Uh, there's reasons why the carbon-14 dating of the late 1980s has been rejected by many scientists. I have a friend, the retired nuclear engineer, Robert Rucker, who has done extensive research and wants the shroud to be redated, because you've got to factor in what caused the image before you can get a, a proper carbon-14 dating. And he shows that if a certain amount of radiation emanated from the corpse moving upward and downward um, at the point that life re-entered Christ. And it's not just a, a resuscitation. It wasn't his mortal body putting on immortality, returning to, mor to mortality. It was his mortal body putting on immortality. So if you, if you find Lazarus's shroud, you're not going to find any image on there. He was only raised back to mortal life. Jesus is the first one, the first fruits from the dead, raised his, with a glorified body, a spiritual body, uh, his immortal body, his mortal body put on immortality. And uh, so I would recommend looking into some of the books on the Shroud. You can go to shroud.com, Barry Schwartz, good, really good guy, love talking with him. The photographer for the 1978 Shroud of Turin research team, he's Jewish. He still has not accepted Jesus as his savior. But when I talked to him on the phone, I said... Uh, uh, do you believe it's the burial cloth of Christ? He said, yes, I haven't heard a better explanation for it. And I said, well, then, uh, do you believe we could replicate the image? No, we don't. Modern science is not that advanced. I said, well, then, do you believe um, that Jesus uh, of Nazareth is your Messiah and that he bodily rose from the dead? And it was the first time I talked to him. I was really surprised that he called me friend, but he said, friend, let's just say I choose not to think about such matters. Okay. Now, now pray for him, because the only people that want to hear from him are Christians. So he's dedicated his life to speaking to Christians about the Shroud of Turin being authentic. So there's a Shroud.com, and then there's ShroudResearch.net. You can look into that. Uh, but whatever the case, in conclusion, Jesus bodily rose from the dead. He is therefore God, Savior, and Messiah, he has conquered death. And so life has meaning. When you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you get washed before you start your day, it's worth it. There is hope. The grave has been defeated. I'm going to close with 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. After this long chapter defending Jesus' resurrection from the dead and then our future resurrection because of it. You know, in fact, I'll start at verse 56. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So because Jesus has risen from the dead and because he gives us the victory, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What does that mean? That means because Jesus has risen from the dead, okay, our work for God's kingdom is not in vain. Now, most of the work I do for God's kingdom, nobody's watching me. I'm alone in my study, reading, studying, preparing sermons, preparing lectures. I do some teaching, so grading papers, okay? But I do get to get in front of people here and other states um, where I actually get to use my gifts and others are around, okay? Uh, some of you... And so, so sometimes people come up to me and say, oh, that was a good sermon, Pastor. Or that was a good lecture, Dr. Fernandez. Um, sometimes people come up to me and they criticize me left and right. Can really, friendly fire can really drag you down. I think to me, I, 
I'd rather have non-believers bouncing rocks off my head than, uh, than believers just constantly criticizing me. And, um, but some of you, when you're serving God, nobody's watching. You're, you're fixing the, the plumbing in somebody's house or you're laying down under a widow's car, fixing it to save her some money. Or you're just being kind to people. I think some of the most powerful I think the things that I do is when I'm walking at school and I just see some little little smelly elementary school boy and I say, hey, how you doing? And give him a high five. Do I give him a high five because I think that's cool? I don't think that's cool. But he thinks it's cool. And he was created in God's image. Yes. My Savior died on the cross for him. Yes. Who am I to just walk by and not acknowledge his existence? And, um, but I'm telling you, sometimes when you're alone and you're getting weary of doing good and you're battered and beaten and you feel like throwing in the towel because Jesus is risen, the work you do in the Lord is not in vain. You feel like you're all alone, nobody's watching. I can name at least three persons that are watching. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune God. He watches. He knows. So as our world gets more and more godless, as our world blasphemes the Lord Jesus, as our world makes fun of us and ridicules us, don't grow weary in doing good. Because the work we do in the Lord is not in vain. For our King is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we just love you, Lord, and uh, I just love the fact that we can gather together to celebrate not only your death on the cross for our sins, but to also celebrate uh, your son's resurrection. And so thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. You're a God who demands perfection. You're totally just. You cannot forgive sin unless it's been paid for in full. So we thank you, Father, for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins, to take our punishment for us. And then we thank you for raising him from the dead to conquer death, man's greatest enemy, to conquer death for us. Lord, it's my prayer that if anyone is here and they've never trusted in your son Jesus for salvation, I pray they would acknowledge that, that they're a sinner. We're all sinners. We can't save ourselves. We don't deserve heaven. And that they would trust in Jesus alone for salvation. For Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead to conquer death for us. Father, may we proclaim your son's death and resurrection until that day when he takes his stand upon the earth to make things right as he shepherds the nations with an iron rod. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.